Hey everybody, this is Marina, your podcast host at Unbossed. Here we go. At Unbossed, I interview amazing women in Chicago. There's so much woman power in this city that I want to provide these women a platform to tell their story. Please connect with us and please consider supporting by sharing, liking, commenting the podcast. Tell all your Netflix friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for our guest. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app and donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes. I hope you enjoy and welcome to the show. This is Marina. I'm your podcast host that on Boss. Today with me, I have Maloney Takrar. She is the founder and principal at Mind the Gender Cup. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So you're the first one at my house. Everybody, <laughs> so excited to hear your all this, all the books. If you don't uh, are not like watching us on YouTube. Uh, there's a bunch of books in the background. We're just chilling at my house. We have a big light. We have two cameras going on. I hope you can see this at some point and enjoy. But otherwise, please just listen to us and our story here. So, um, Erica Zaza referred you. Yeah. Yeah. We have her in common. So, shout out to Erica. Um, but specifically, like, let's get into your story. Sure. Right? So, like, tell me a little bit about you growing up and... What have you, what is a story that maybe represents you and the work that you're going to be talking to us about today? Um, well, wow, that's a big question. Okay, tiny question. Where did you grow up? Where did I grow up? Um, so I actually, a lot of people don't know this about me, but I spent um, some a part of my childhood in Texas. Oh, yeah, so uh, in Dallas. And so I did have a very thick Texan accent. <laughs> <laughs> and okay. while, looking like this. Yeah, while rocking the wool cut. <laughs> so it was um, a very memorable um, time in my life. And um, it was also during the time where like most of my um, extended family, even to this day, yeah. but back then as well, we're based in Chicago, so it was always my dream to like finally make uh, for us to like finally make our way um, back to Chicago. Yeah. But I was actually I bo- was born in the suburbs of Chicago, so it was sort of coming full circle. Yeah. So I lived in Houston for a little bit. Oh, you so did. I drove a twelve-foot truck when I moved to Chicago. Awesome. <laughs> the United States. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> did you ever drive a twelve-foot truck? Um, I did not drive a truck because I was in Texas from ages two to seven, so they wouldn't let me. Um, but I did. I do remember. I think my my dad was an engineer, and it was fairly common for people who worked in engineering construction to have like the big pickup trucks. Uh, but we didn't actually go that route. We we stuck with uh, yeah, the these. So it was you and your dad. Um, and tell me about like the influences that you have around. Sure. Um, so just a little bit of co- context uh, is um, my family was in a car accident when I was an infant, um, and both my brother and my mother passed away in that car accident. And so um, it, my father played a, obviously a critical role in my upbringing yeah. um, as the sole parental figure. And I asked him a few years ago, actually, 
what was his favorite memory of me? And of course, he he says he talks about the eight when I was four years old because that was his favorite age. He much more enjoyed me as a, a small child than he does now. But um, and you know, he he said you know we were in Target, which nothing extraordinary about that, but. Um, you know, Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It comes on the intercom, and I was really into that song at that time, because um, it was always playing on the radio, and, um, you know, this, again, I was at four, so I was still developing my language skills, but I was like, Daddy, got to do, and he started burst out laughing, and I think when I think about that story, you know, in my childhood is like how you derive meaning and humor from like the most ordinary of moments um, and then you know my father being sort of the sole parental figure for much of my childhood um, like it was very common for us to go run errands together because there wasn't another parent to pass me up to so um, yeah, and at the time, Target was very big in Texas. Like it didn't, it wasn't really big in Chicago. So I was so excited when Target finally made its arrival here. Um, and then another story that comes to mind is I was recently, or not recently, but like a few years ago, I was doing a lot of Marie Kondoing, uh, physical <laughs> decluttering, and um, and there was two big boxes like from my childhood and. One of the patterns that emerged, so to speak, was um, a lot of the toys that I got were um, basically like these uh, computers with educational games on them. <laughs> this is before the ages of the iPad and laptop, so um, that was the closest thing I got. Um, and they just had these like banks of different questions and like, covering different topics. And then another pattern, that, like similarly, like another thing that I noticed in these boxes was a lot of the um, educational workbooks <laughs> where you get like stickers and whatnot if you finish the exercises. And I just, I think that's such a great reflection of the, the value my father instilled in me. He always used to say like, no one can ever take away your education. Oh, yeah, that's true. Um, and so for a very young age, as <laughs> a typical um, Asian um, child, like education was um, always considered one of the most important things to like focus on. Yeah, and speaking about the care of your heritage, you're like South Asian from, you know where your uh, ethnical background is? Sure, yeah. So um, my ancestors are from um, Gujarat in India, but my um, parents both my parents were born and raised in East Africa, so that's sort of a subculture cool. of um, Indians. There's uh, East African Indians. Actually, I actually was aware of this. <laughs> yeah, there's actually East African Indian Association that my parents are very <laughs> much a part of back in the day. Um, and, uh, you know, when I think about um, sort of the This is the story of my ancestors of like immigrating from India and in to Africa for economic in pursuit of economic opportunity. Was that the reason? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then um, there's actually uh, it's been out for a few years now, but there's an Economist article that specifically talks about um, Gujarati Indians being very entrepreneurial, and they they actually highlight the story of an Indian 
uh, migrating to East Africa and Tanzania specifically. Um, so my mom um, was born and raised in Malawi, um, and my father was born and raised in Tanzania. Wow. So, and have you ever gone? I have not. Um, it's been on my bucket list for a while, but it's one of those where I, um, when I go, I'm going to go for a while, like not just like a one week, two weeks yeah, type trip. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it makes sense. Like you want to just explore, soak it in, right? Really, like be part of it. I, I, I get it. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Um. So. You are also a traveler. And we can <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not so much now. <laughs> Thanks to uh, the like well, year, year ticket prices are extremely cheap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have been looking. I've been looking. Uh, but no, like um, your dad, you, you and your dad must have been super close. And he, yeah. and he gave you this like powerful statement about education and, and skill set that you've carried over. And, You've taken that and based on your resume, right? Yeah. You've like had earned quite a pedigree, including <laughs> including <laughs> I'm gonna like talk about So yeah, I um, just like as a backstory to provide a little bit of context, you know, so you know, just my family at this point has lived in um, basically four different continents. Like my ancestors are from India. My parents were born and raised in Africa. They lived in uh, London for several years before migrating to the U.S. So I felt like when thinking about my family story, um, I was always curious and interested about learning different cultures and visiting other places at any opportunity I got. Um, and um, while I was um, Deciding whether to go, go where to go to for undergrad. Um, you know, I had a lot of um, pressure from family to go to the the standard state school, University of Illinois, um, and the compromise was, well, you can go anywhere for grad school <laughs> if um, if you go in state uh, for undergrad. And so I I took them up on that. So like when when grad school came around, um, I. Um, Spent a year in Australia and a year in the UK at the yeah. London School of Economics. Um, and I basically had gotten two master's degrees in two years in two what? different countries. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's actually the silliest thing I've ever done or the smartest thing I've ever done. But I was like, I'm, you know, I, it's grad school. I can study in grad school. Um, yeah. And, you know, both of those uh, experiences were great both academically as well as you know, and, and so how did that work because now I'm just curious okay like, so like, this, how, how to be fair two grad school degrees in two years from two different schools to be fair um, this was a part of the initial plan but life is what happens when you make that plan so what happened was I had applied for a scholarship um, and I had to apply for the scholarship before I applied to grad school and um, it was one of those scholarships where um, ultimately they decide where you go. Like you can you can list your top priority schools. And initially, when I applied for the scholarship, I'm like, I just put down London School of Economics. And the people, the committee that um, sort of helped prepare my me and coached me for the application came back and said, "Listen, we think you're a really strong candidate, but you should put down another school besides London School of Economics." It's really 
competitive. And although I do speak Spanish, like I, I couldn't see myself completing a grad school program in Spanish. Um, and so I stuck with English speaking schools. And so um, naturally, like Australia came up as like one of the places. And then like they had told me this like right before the official deadline, even though I had submitted my application like a few months ahead, months in advance. Um, so I was like just frantically looking at the internet. I'm like, okay, this one looks good. It's a solid school. And I slapped it down. Uh, I think I think I put down Australia as like my third or fourth choice. And so I found out um, in August um, that I got the scholarship. Ooh. And at that point, I didn't know where I was placed, but they, they, it's like they, <laughs> they slowly keep you, <laughs> string you along. Um, and then a couple months later, I found out I got into grad school. And then I found out that I got placed in a different place for, my, um, for the scholarship. And so my dilemma uh, was... Um, to go to one school or do I go to school? Yeah, and... Um, one of my colleagues who was also very well traveled, he's like, Well, why does it have to be one or the other? Like, can you just defer London? I'm like, I'm pretty sure they'll let you defer. Um, and I was like, Okay, because uh, I had my heart set up, like, what the school, school of economics. And so I, like, I said, Well, if I get the deferral, which isn't um, something they always grant easily. Um, I'll go to both, but if I don't get the deferral, I'm just going to go to London. Um, and so that's sort of how that happened. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, it was a, it was a, who is this God bless colleague of yours who was like, <laughs> why not both? <laughs> He's like, he's audacious. Yeah, 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 yeah. A year or her, I don't know. Uh, he, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, why not both? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he was one of my colleagues in the That's Women so cool. yeah. Why not? Why not? <laughs> exactly. Why can't you have both hands? You can have air and air and air and air. <laughs> the 
meeting introduction where we took an econ course um, and other policy related courses and then a part of that program was actually having people who are working in the field um, coming in and talking about their experience and where they worked. Um, so from that, that point on, I was, I was fairly clear that I wanted to get my degree in policy. Um, and it wasn't until I um, my first job out of um, undergrad, which was working at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, that I sort of clarified um, that I really wanted to focus on gender uh, and, and um, policy. And is that that is that is a specialization? Well, at the time <laughs> in the U.S., it was not. It did oh, not okay. exist. There are some programs now, okay. but there wasn't really a specialty. But I really wanted to focus on gender issues within um, yeah. the field of uh, policy. Yeah. And um, the closest that came to it is you get into a policy program and you can take a course in gender and whatnot. Um, and so, what I loved about what really drew me to the London School of Economics um, was that it, it's like it's like the school of 10,000 master degrees, like you can choose your own adventure. And so they they um, they had a, a degree program, <laughs> like seriously, they have like 10,000 um, and um, they had a program specifically on gender and social policy and they had a gender institute. Um, and so, um, you know, that's where that's how I sort of decided like this is the school I want to go to and this is the program I want to do because um, at that time there wasn't really any options in the US um, around that now there are but at the time when I went to grad school which is like more than a decade ago now um, that that's like that was really only the op uh, the only option the only I had option. Um, okay so by the way I love London yeah, and um, that's one of my favorite cities in the world. Uh -huh. Best and worst parts of London. Best and worst things about London, quickly. Okay, sure, know. sure. Because I, so I, I, I dig London. So <laughs> okay, so visiting London as a tourist is very different than living in London. Absolutely. Okay, so I spent the most expensive month was like four months. Okay, so okay, well that's still like a reasonable yeah. amount of time. So I will say the the lack of sunshine really got to me. And, and, and we're in Chicago, so. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think the other sort of like um, ramification of that is like people are um, very grumpy <laughs> because of the lack of sunshine. And including myself, like I felt like I was grumpy <laughs> because of the lack of sunshine. And I was like, oh my gosh, like what does the sun even look like anymore? <laughs> um, so and then yeah and so and, and you know it was very damp so they're like living conditions like the um a lot of the the houses were much older than um, many of the places that are available in the U.S. Um, and so it's just like there are some realities of living there like uh, mold is very common <laughs> just living in damp <laughs> quarters is very common um, and mice were very common as yeah. well but. Um, you know, like when you think about it in, in terms of the big picture, like those things are like sort of trivial when you think about like what a phenomenal experience and opportunity to be able to study at the world renowned like institution, um, to, to live in a place where my parents lived for several years, um, it was sort of like a way to, um, reconnect. Yeah. 
And um, like even when I go for runs in the morning along the Thames, there was all these like historic buildings, like you know. So um, it's those moments, um, and then even like being able to study with and have peers from all over the world. Yeah, we're, yeah. like one of the most brilliant have, people. I'm extremely shallow, like love them for other reasons. The accents. <laughs> <laughs> the accents are party. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Let me see what else. No, it's a beautiful city. Yeah, yeah. No, there's a lot. There's a lot. Of work. Uh, uh, public policy, gender focus. Yeah. And then, what did you study in London and Australia? So, um, in Australia, I studied public policy, and in um, London, I studied gender and social policy. Yes. So, I think of them as like one degree is more um, like a generalist degree, and one was more of a specialist degree. That's how in my mind how I rationalized um, yeah. getting two master's degrees. And so, then um, with this passion, right, you come out of this and this, and are you working at the same time? Um, no, I, I took. I, I, I just I yeah. yeah. So you go into the workforce and you yes get slammed in the face with reality. <laughs> Is that how it goes? Yeah. Um, like I entered the workforce, re-entered rather, um, during the recession, which was not the most ideal time um, to be entering the workforce. Um, but and then you came back to the university. Yeah. Yeah. And what was interesting. Um, coming back at that time is I really felt like I had to justify my global <laughs> degrees. Um, Why? I, I don't I don't know. Um, like, but you justify. Uh, like I, this wasn't even for a full time job. This was for an internship in between the degrees. I interviewed for an organization that had the word global in it, and. <laughs> I got grilled about my decisions to go abroad to um, cultivate my my grad school. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm very serious. Um, and so, that's and that's something you know. I, I got London School of Economics. I mean, um, it is the London School of Economics. Yeah, it is the London School of Economics. <laughs> what question? Uh, and honestly, that's why I got the two degrees because I knew with just having Australian National University. Even though it is a very good, high caliber school academically, most people in the U.S. Like, haven't ever heard of it. So I felt most people in the U.S. have never heard of NYU either. <laughs> yeah. I guess that's a whole other matter about um, <laughs> living in the U.S.A. Um, but yeah, so I, it was a little bit of an uphill battle. Um, I initially started working for a nonprofit that focused on. Um, human trafficking and child trafficking and such an important space yeah and there was a lot of interesting stuff happening it still is in in the state of Illinois around um, passing sort of innovative legislation around um, anti-trafficking laws yeah um, and around that same time I also served on a board for an organization that um, focused on um, sex trafficking um, so that was kind of the lane I was started out in and then quickly realized that I wanted to do work that was more analytical in nature versus um, simply um, focusing on programming. And that's why I sort of shifted into working in um, the research and evaluation field, which is basically uh, assessing, for lack of a better word, the impact of um, these larger, broader initiatives um, 
and I felt like that was sort of a good shift for me um, and looking at when you when we look at these like uh, broader initiatives or large-scale initiatives whether it's focusing on um, gender equity or um, racial equity or workforce development um, that it was really important to think through like what and ask the questions of like what impact is this initiative really having at the end of the day? And most people either who are doing the work or investing the work aren't able to answer those questions right off the bat. Yeah. How did that move you into starting your own thing? Um, well, that was a journey. <laughs> it's been a very um, long, winding path. Yeah. Um, so when I um, was working in research and evaluation, I, I did have like the luxury of being able to work on a portfolio of work that focused on gender equity, um, and so that was very fulfilling and interesting to me. But when I pulled out um, and looked at the broader picture, um, it, that work was only making uh, made up a small, like, percentage of my workload and I, that was the type of work I wanted to do more of and the work I was most excited about and the work that I did the best in like I should you know when you're most like excited about it that's where you do your best work and um, whenever I would broach the subject of like how can I like broaden this this pocket of work more so that it takes up more of my workload um, I felt like I, I always got a little bit of pushback. Um, and an example of this was on my professional development plan, I went I put down gender equity expert as like one of my professional development goals. And my supervisor at the time like physically crossed that off my plan. And I was like, oh, and I didn't think of it as like my personal professional goals were um independent of or mutually exclusive of the business goals like I felt like there was an opportunity to expand that portfolio of work and um, the people I worked with just weren't aligned or on the same page around that thinking um, and there was just some uh, it was just a time where I had to eventually move back to closer to the bird's nest <laughs> because most of my extended family's here and my father's here and um, the role reversal between parent and child <laughs> became all of a sudden. Um, and so I said, well, I guess now's the time to, um, you know, see how this path unfolds. Um, and so that's partly like how I ended up yeah. um, wanting to carve my own path. That is, that is also why it takes a lot of like knowing what you want. I mean, you've been pursuing this for so long. It must be extremely satisfying to be doing this all the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like, I have to say, like, there was, like, the first couple years, um, I was doing interesting work, but it wasn't necessarily fully aligned with what I envisioned the work that I really wanted to be doing and the skill sets I really wanted to apply. I don't think it's until recently that I've been able to... Um, it takes a bit of time. Yeah. Really I mean, the, and just like the path of the entrepreneur, like there's so many, like I think of it as um, 
riding a roller coaster blindfolded and you don't know when you're going to get off. Like, that, I mean, it is, it is like, there's nothing to glamorize about, like, technically we could try to do that. We could go to Six Flags. <laughs> we could. We could. I mean, is Six Flags yeah. over? I don't even know. It is over. Just walk this summer with the girls. Okay. We could blindfold ourselves. <laughs> Is this going to be part of your podcast? All surprises. Stay tuned. Um, that would be fun. No. Uh, but yeah, I totally agree. And I keep wondering, like, there's this one question that comes back to me all the time. It's like, why gender equity? Like, I get it. Like, sure. I, I get I get it's important, but why are you, you sure. specifically doing gender So, um, just to provide a little bit of context, um, so my mother... Um, when she immigrated to the U.S., she was pregnant with me, and um, she wasted no time to secure a minimum wage job at Toys R Us, and shortly thereafter, she secured a job at a life insurance company, um, and as you can imagine, this company provided benefits <laughs> such as um, health insurance, um, which was critical for expecting mother, um, and maternity leave, which was also nice to have for expecting mother, <laughs> um, as you know, being a mother yourself. And this all happened in the middle of recession. Um, and her health insurance benefits, uh, literally, and her maternity leave benefits, literally kicked in right before I was born. And I think about that story, I mean, it's very much... Uh, a story that's uniquely my mother's, but at the same time, it's um, very much resonates the experience of immigrant women <laughs> moving to this country and trying to build a life for their families. Yeah. And when you look on a macro level, it wouldn't be any less miraculous today for a woman who is brown-skinned, immigrant from Malawi, one of the poorest countries in the world, six months pregnant, to secure a job with the had good benefits, like it'd be almost impossible. Just as as much of as a miracle it was today, it'd be just as miraculous. Um, I mean, excuse me, you know, as much as it was a miracle back then, it would be just as miraculous today. And that is a point of um, frustration for me. Like, I don't think. Wait, when did you learn this? So. Uh, I think I really. Um, what really opened my eyes that this was the reality is my first job out of um, undergrad was working at the workplace, uh, excuse me, working at the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Mm -hmm. And there I had to investigate workplace discrimination cases. Oh, my God. Um, and so my job was literally to listen to people's stories in graphic detail of the challenges and adversity they faced. Including them. Including women, or especially, especially <laughs> women, uh, especially women of color. Yeah. Um, so I kind of did things backwards, where I saw how things were working on the ground first, and then went to grad school to learn the theory, intersectionality, and what have you. That is perfect. Um, and um, you know, when I listened to these stories, I couldn't help but think about my mother's story. Yeah. Um, and I just. I, I think like having a job so that you, where you're treated with a certain level of respect and dignity should just be a, a standard or a status quo, but it is not. Animal. Yeah, I have two things to say. One is um, uh, 
I, I struggle with this now. Like maternity leave is I've been blessed that a company I work for gave me six months of maternity leave almost. Yeah, and that's amazing. Paid completely for my care basically. Uh-huh. Um, without even tapping into my insurance. I am so grateful. Like, yeah. Grateful. Because I did not qualify for FMLA. And even at, even if I did, it would be unpaid leave. Right. And I do not like it hurts me to think like how how do women do it? Right, and I, I, I couldn't. I don't. I don't know where. Why is it? Why do we think that it's okay to leave women behind this way? I don't understand. Yeah, um, particularly in the U.S. Like, particularly, in particular, in, in the U.S. is the only OECD country that does that, that does, does not care that does not provide um, paid paternity yes. paternal leave, um, and. Um, even like caregiving leave, they're they're ranked <laughs> the lowest, and so, um, but in that context, the yeah. U.S. is one of the least friendly family friendly family friendly places, <laughs> which is so weird because everybody has a family, right? Right. Uh, and we hear about our children so much. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so totally. Um, I will also say that your story is so unique and so special. Um, you mentioned a concept like intersectionality. I want to get into that. Sure. But I would love for you to tell us uh, and inform the, the, the audience here, like, what do you do now? What is your company? <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> I guess you should go. <laughs> I write all the way back and then I got to here. So sure. No, so here we are. So, like, tell us, like, uh, what do you specialize in? Uh, what do you are passionate about? And and then I'm gonna we're, let's go into like some terminology like intersectionality, sure, and, and diversity and equity. And what does that stuff? Sure, mean? sure. Um, so my company is called Mind the Gender Gap. Mind the Gender Gap, <laughs> um, which is very London. Yeah, way. yeah. But um, really, it's a boutique consultancy that helps companies accelerate intersectional gender equity by leveraging um, technology and data storytelling. Wow. Uh, which I know is a lot, so I can have to pack it. I can have to pack it. Yeah, listen to um, So the first jargony word we can unpack, <laughs> even though I try not to be too jargony, is um, intersectional gender equity or intersectionality. And that was a, a term coined by Kimberly Crenshaw that really sort of highlighted that women of color, in particular in the workplace, um, experience interlocking systems of oppression. Um, the primary, in, in this the particular context she was looking at is racism and sexism. And she sort of used the analogy of like a woman standing at the intersection of racism and sexism. And that, that's her, uh, particularly for women of color, yeah. that's their experience in the workplace. And it's uniquely different than um, you know, someone that would just experience solely racism versus solely um, sexism, and so, um, and you know that that applied to my mother's experience, um, and that it, that still applies to many women of color um, in the U.S. context, um, and so that's why I wrote my master's thesis on intersectionality um, within the context of workplace discrimination. And it was an interesting time to explore that topic in the UK because at the time um, they had a commission that focused specifically on 
uh, racial equality, and then they had another commission that focused on gender equality. So it wasn't combined, whereas in the U.S., um, there were several different bases that were um, under one organization that was being covered. Okay. Um, so intersectionality of gender, say that one more intersectionality of gender equity? Uh, intersectional gender equity. Intersectional gender equity, correct. Yeah. Okay. And then the other part was about um, te technology and data storytelling. Yeah. Um, visual, well, visual data storytelling, right? Well, a data storytelling, let me unpack what data yeah, yeah. storytelling is because I think that's also a buzzword that's thrown around a okay. lot. Um, but um, I, I kind of uh, have adopted a framework both um, from Fred Sykes that wrote the book on effective data storytelling that really breaks down data storytelling in three components. Okay. Um, one is the actual data, <laughs> um, two is the visuals, and then the third is um, the narrative. Uh, what I sort of also like overlay that with is um, data feminism. So when you're looking at the data, really asking yourself, um, what are the gaps in the data? Who's collecting the data? What narratives are being told or derived from that data? And really thinking more critically and analytically, um, because having worked in the research and evaluation field for so many years, what became clear to me is um, data can be a very powerful tool for change, Yes, but it can also be weaponized to perpetuate inequities um, based on who's being invisibilized yeah. in those narratives. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, in many cases, the data gaps, yeah. and there are actually quite a few when you think about data, uh, excuse me, when in relation to gender issues. Yeah. So, um, like, there's so much here, which is awesome, right? <laughs> and I would love to have a whole day. <laughs> yeah, we could talk all day. But, but I also want audience to know, it's like, okay, now you said, like, you you obviously work for gen towards gender equity and the instrumentalities of sex and sexual and uh, sex and racial discrimination. Mm -hmm. And then you do analytics with data and you unpack that. And but you also take a look behind the scene and how the research is done, right? But in practice, right, if somebody was what to is hire, like? walk in the door, right, what do you do? Um, well, it depends on the client because, like, working with a nonprofit or doing a research-based type project looks very different than working with um, a company uh, focusing on their DEI initiatives. Yeah. Um, so an example is like one of my, just to talk more real yeah. concretely without naming the, the extra client, but um, I have a client currently that is a high growth startup, but they're very early in their DEI journey. Um, and, and what that means is... They've they done some things <laughs> like six vision statements, but um, not a whole lot. What like, that means is they're mostly men <laughs> and white. Yeah, I mean, you work in tech, so yeah, you, you can paint the picture. But, um, and that they think that that may be a problem, right? And so they, they're trying to figure out what to do about it. Yeah, and so my approach typically, just also like as a consultant, I try to be as pragmatic as possible. Um, is they've already collected a lot of data, and so really starting out, like, what have they collected, and what are they make? How did, did they make sense of that data? Because usually, what clients need the most support with is not collecting data. They already have plenty of data to work with. Is how do you make sense of that and um, translate that data into actionable insights 
that inform effective decision making. And um, we're still very early in the journey, but like really talking them, talking through like what um, existing data that they have, and then ha starting to have the conversation when there is um, different stakeholders in the company who have different perspectives of where the company's at when it comes to their DEI journey to have like a yeah. conversation. And we talk a lot about DEI journey here, and um, I may like do another break and then we'll go back to it. Okay. This is like I want to finish this. Sure. And have like a sure. conversation. But um, in terms of like DEI journey, maybe like we can we can we can leave the audience with this before the break. And is um, what is important about the EI journey right now? Why are people adopting it? And and generally, like frame frame a DEI journey kind of thing for a company, and briefly, if you can. Um, well, I think it. You when think thinking about the DEI journey, I think it's important to understand the organization's readiness for change, because usually when it comes to DEI, it's, it's about changing the status quo or how typically things are done at the company. And it, power dynamics. Yeah, power, definitely power dynamics. Um, and so there's that, and part of that conversation is also really getting clear on how much the company is going to invest in that effort, mm. both pragmatically in terms of actual dollars, um, staff, um, and how um, the company collectively is gonna take ownership of that initiative so that it's sustainable. Um, and so that really varies, uh, like I don't have like a, a clean framework because it's so different um, based on what type of organization, like working with a nonprofit is very different than a high growth tech startup. Um, and also, um, like you know just where they're at in terms of their capacity to change and how much how like how much resources they can invest in those efforts i found um through a lot of trial and error <laughs> that the organization can't be too small or too early on when building a company either as a nonprofit or a startup for example um because they're not quite ready to build out the systems and processes and infrastructure um and at the same time, if they're too big, it, it almost feels like they're so well established in their systems and processes that it's really hard to change. Um, yeah, move the needle yeah. on that, those efforts. Okay, beautiful. Let's go break, and then we'll be back in two minutes. Let's see. So we were talking about DEI and um, and what that means for companies. So, like, I'm gonna be. Honest, here. sure. Because like I'm, I, I don't know, I don't know <laughs> to do this. <laughs> Bring it. But I'm like, I had this woman who was running this company that I used to work for, okay. and she sat with me and she's like, Marina, do you know why ninety five percent of my C suite is women? It's because I'm a woman, right? Okay. Do you also know why ninety five percent of my C suite is white? Because I'm white. <laughs> wow. <laughs> She said that out loud. Yes, she said that out loud. Uh, and so I was like, okay, cool. So then, you know, can she turn brown or something? So that we can, we can just have more brown people around here. I was like, you know, and that's like part of her like awareness was the fact that like she was able to recognize 
that is a mirror almost, right? And, yeah. and, and leadership is like almost like self-reflecting, right? right? And so my point to that is like people that say, I'm trying to figure out how to have more women on my board. Oh, I'm trying to figure out how to have more women VPs that are yeah. that are colored or, or generally more women. My my answer to that is just like hire more do just hire them. Right. <laughs> you know, right. just just do it. Right. So so to me, DEI programs, I understand the need. I I want us to talk about the need for them. Sure. But also like it feels a little bit hoaxy. Sure. No, for sure. Uh, well, first of all, I felt, and I still sometimes feel comfortable, like, branding myself in the DEI space. Okay. Um, and partly because when you think about the field and how they um, frame solutions, they're not necessarily framed to dismantle systems of oppression. And when you think about systems of oppression and how they show up in the workplace, they are very ubiquitous. They are very sophisticated and they're very durable. And the DEI field. What is an example of a system repression in the workplace? Um, Generally just, speaking. I mean, just like a simple thing is like the standard, uh, a common standard in the workplace is to do a 40 hour work week minimum uh, for a, a professional full time job. That's a system of. I, you're totally right. I and just discovered this. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> but like, who made up this rule? Yeah. I guarantee you, it wasn't an expecting mother who realizes that they spend the majority of their time with the caregiver as is like, you know, fulfilling their caregiving responsibilities and um, oh, taking care of the children. Because when you look at time studies, regardless of how egalitarian um, the households are, generally speaking, it's the mother that devotes more most of, yeah, most more of the time. time to caregiving and that doesn't it doesn't make a difference if it's a dual income household where both yeah, I, I have to shout out my husband because he's taking care of the baby right now. I'm, I'm here yeah. <laughs> no, but like the, another thing is there's no there and this is on the docket right now in um, being argued in the house is um excuse me in Congress is we don't have paid leave in the US. And who does that impact the most? Women? Yeah. I mean, of course. Uh, and but uh, and and also, don't get me started on freaking taxes and abortion laws. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like we're but, losing. When uh, this is the other thing about like thinking about destroying my mother. Uh, like, first of all, we live in Texas, so that kind of hit home um, uh, uh, harder than I would have liked. Uh, but when we look at the like the data, you know, especially with the pandemic, we regressed back to 1998 in terms of labor force participation rates for women. Yes. And we are sort of at a critical juncture. Like we really need to ask ourselves why that is and what are some sustainable solutions to address that? Because if we don't, we're not talking about just one woman benefiting this or a group of women benefiting. We're talking about our economy. We're talking about like our society. Yeah. Um, our, we're talking about our children. Yeah. We're talking about not only our women, girls, but also our boys. Yeah. It's like it, it, it's it's uh, all impregnated. They're all impregnated based on you know distributing. Yeah. All over. Right. But and and then my point is is the same though. Like 
let's go vote for women, right? Like, let's put women women that do suffer. Let's put them up there, right? But then I know you have a counter argument to this. Well, I don't. I know. I don't. It's not counter. Is in addition. Yeah. Even. Well, I think it's nuanced because I don't. Uh, people just automatically assume that because I have an organization called Mind the Gender Gap, that it, the solution is just to have women in leadership. And I, I think it that is definitely critical. I wonder, like, I think it's, like, one of the most powerful. Yeah. I mean, there's plenty of data that shows how we would be happier, healthier, wealthier, <laughs> generally speaking. If, if women led more, <laughs> Yeah, but there's also time, there has been, like, situations and contexts where women leadership haven't necessarily um, helped dismantle patriarchy. Well, the, <laughs> the patriarchy hasn't dismantled the patriarchy. Yeah, right. It was give right. us some time to figure it out. Like, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, you know, like, because it's so ubiquitous, yeah. like, yeah. everyone sure. is affected by sure. it. So, um, and, 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 you know, there's a the part of, like, you know, being the first one there and going with the game and all that good stuff, right? But we're, we're talking about a uh, system of oppressions in the workplace. Yeah. Which also reflect all of our society. And you said very much well, like 40 hours work week, eight hours of work day, right? Like yeah. those are, those are minimum subtle, <laughs> subtle ways. Yeah. Yeah. To exclude um, specific parts of the population or even like the other day I was talking to a woman who is the president of a university is like I was telling her even the fact that college is during the day and it happens during working hours is a system of oppression in my mind because from the Dominican Republic for example um, after your first year of college college happens between there at 6 p.m. and midnight because most people go to work during the day and then go to college at night yeah um yeah, so when, when you, I mean, that's a really good example of, like, there are other ways we can reimagine how we operate in society when it comes to the workplace yeah. and even pursue education while we're yeah. working. Because the type of work that happens between the hours 6 and 12. <laughs> those are some power hours for certain people when they have to out of necessity, right? Like, out of necessity. 6 and 6, right? But the type of work that happens during the 6 and 6 is not, I don't know, like, I, I, I'm tempted to say, most of that work is not necessarily like 18 year old i'm gonna build a good set of skill set type of work right, right. like it, it's it's specific niche type of work and there's not as much as diversity as between the hours 6 a.m and 6 p.m kind of thing right? right um so you you identify the system of oppression so i don't know if i identified all of them mental, <laughs> i don't know if we have a fully back to that <laughs> We, so we you go in and you tell them, look, this is what you're doing. No, no. I, I, well, I, it's, it has to take. Um, I have I have to learn how to be very strategic in how I broach this subject right. because early on in my career, I did not have a good poker face, and I was very blunt, and that approach um, didn't really get me too far in terms of what I wanted to achieve. What I realized is how important the delivery and how it's delivered and, um, you know, what I'm trying to communicate, what's the end goal here, what are some calculated risks I'm willing to make, and how, how do I communicate that effectively. And I found with, um, that's partly why I gravitate towards data storytelling, because then I can point to, 
um, this is what the data shows, and then to, sh to communicate it effectively, to really distill down what are the key points or takeaways, um, and then to have a, a nuanced discussion about that, versus either just showing them a dashboard with a bunch of metrics there, where it's, it can be a, a little overwhelming, or just showing them, like, these are the data sources you can look at, that's also very overwhelming when translating or or, or or even just saying like, look, I've seen this problem many times before. This is how you do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is. It, there is this balance of being compassionate mm -hmm. and account, like holding them accountable. Yeah. And yeah. It, there is no. It's like an an art <laughs> that I'm still learning, yeah. and not not by any means mastered. But like, I have found when I've talked to founders of companies or CEOs of companies and even more recently a chief data officer, like they find the data storytelling piece compelling and that's sort of my entryway or gateway into having the more difficult and challenging conversation. Yeah, because then it becomes, you know, it's not a new problem is a is a is a kind of like a a system problem is, you know, we can solve this without personalizing it. Yeah, and it's like personal. it's Speak, learning to speak their language, right? Like, um, and how how you communicate or talk about DEI with the ERG leader, for example, will be very different than talking to the CFO yeah. at a company. And like learning to adapt, mm -hmm. and it almost feels like you have to be multilingual <laughs> when doing this work. And so there's probably many women that are listening that are leading DEI programs right now or are involved in it because that's generally what happens sometimes. Oh yeah, hopefully by choice, not about obligation or duty. You can maybe tap on the shoulder or <laughs> by choice. Yeah, voluntary. <laughs> voluntold. You voluntold or you volunteer as a tribute, I don't know, whatever yeah. happens. Yeah. How do you, give them a couple of tips on how to handle um, the adoption of DEI, um, like, like what the whole tips would you have for them that are in the midst right now? They can say, okay, how do I potentially get people to listen to this and actually invest into this? Well, I mean, I think that one of the challenges with this work is people are always looking for the magic bullet. And the thing is, there is no magic bullet. Like, it's really starting on and understanding the context that you're operating in. Who are the key stakeholders? what is the language that they speak and what I mean, like what is their preferred uh, communication method? Like some people prefer looking at a deck versus reading a memo. Um, some people like having a, a conversation, maybe at some point it'd be in-person conversation <laughs> versus on a Zoom call um, to talk things through, um, especially when you're trying to get a nuanced conversation and, and try to think about like, what do you see your role is? Like, how can you leverage your skills and strengths um, to move the, the whatever it is you're trying to move forward? Um, forward, um, but like thinking, I think it's also you need to do some self-reflection of like, what is the point of all this, right? Like thinking both in the short term and the long term. Like, if you are the ERG leader, for example. Like what? What type of programming do you think would be valuable or meaningful to that ERG group? But how does that align with like longer-term goals or with the business goals? Like I think um, a, a lot of times when I work, I've tried to align the overall business strategy with 
the DEI and people strategy? Some of the most common, if you can mention a few, low hanging fruits. The people, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, just because I, I, I'm sure there are yeah. some few actions that you yeah. can just start doing in right. order to, to step into this, right? Right. So, what are some of those lower hanging fruits? Like, one is just like, it, it can get really overwhelming of trying to do everything at once. Yeah. And so just figuring out like what are the one or two things you can focus on yeah. within the DEI space. What have you noticed is, is there a commonality across? Uh, I mean, I think the conversation right now has, there's been a lot of energy around hiring efforts. Yeah. And um, working at high growth startups, they're always looking at how to scale and grow as quickly as possible and having more bodies working at their company. And similarly, like within the, against the backdrop of the great resignation um, that's becoming um, increasingly more relevant, it, a lot of recruiters are asking questions of like, how do I attract people <laughs> to my company to work for? How do I convince them to work for the company I'm recruiting for? Um, and I think based on all that's happened over the past year, the conversation around DEI and social justice has sort of come front and center. So they are starting to think about, well, like how how do I just attract your workforce now that like people are paying more attention to these issues? But like, how do I, um, you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, um, embed those values yeah. into the, to the the processes that we. So uh, hiring is one of the most common conversations right now. Yeah. Are there tactics, one or two, that you may get people started on? Well, again, like it's um, based on context. So like even with within hiring, there's, there's like so layers, layers, right? Yeah. So um, I think one of the challenges a lot of my clients have is they are misdiagnosing the problem. and that can be easily addressed by looking at the data more carefully. Like where um, in your hiring funnel are you um, seeing a drop in um, diversity? Um, what is it at the, you're not even getting people to apply at your company? <laughs> and if so, what is that all about? Um, is it when they're, they're making it to the interview stage, they're just not getting offers? Like so, and so like how your strategy for addressing people not making it past the interview stage would be look very different than if you're not getting people oh, at the yeah, end yeah. um, So that's just an example. Yeah. And then from there to like find tools and resources to help address them. I want to know like, uh, is there such a thing like a, the, one of the most simpler problems in DI versus one of the most complex? Um, and I wonder if it has to do, going back to that gender, um, sex intersectionality, and I wonder if there's something around that that you can give me. And maybe that's the wrong question, but I sure you know where, you're, where I'm going. Sure. It's like, what, are the, what is the spectrum, maybe, that you have encountered? Yeah. It's like, maybe the, the lower spectrum and, and the higher spectrum of, of the systemic um, well, I think, I don't know if this really answers your question, yeah, but ahead. one of the things in the DEI space is people are looking for like 
quick solutions. Yeah. And the reality... I haven't even asked you about it. Like, <laughs> what is the large? Yeah, yeah and it's like, they yeah. want the magic yeah. bullet. Like, I get this, and I'm like, there is no magic bullet. It just takes a lot of work. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, like, one of the ways that has manifested is uh, in the DEI space, there's a multi-billion dollar industry focusing just on DEI training. And I'm sorry, we're not going to dismantle some suppression with a one or two day training. Like that is not a sustainable solution, but it is a multi-billion dollar industry because there is a demand for it and there is a supply of it. So, um, you know, I have been a little bit discerning with clients. I'm like, listen, if you want, oh, uh, one day in conscious bias training, I'm not the person for you. I actually refer you to someone who will take your money for that service, but I, I don't do that. Um, and I don't do that because that's what the, the research shows, that those are not effective yet. Um, and so I think just this need or urge to like oversimplify things and do it like quickly um, is part of the challenge of doing work in this space. It's like one of the biggest challenges. And um, the other challenge I have, which is partly why I have this very jargony <laughs> tagline about intersectional gender equity is quite often when you look at publicly available DEI reports, they will break down the data um, and they'll look at race and it'll be completely independent of the gender breakdowns. And the challenge with that is it's invisibilizing the narrative of what's going on for women of color or even for men of color, um, depending on the sector. And so, um, and, and even non-binary folks, like they're, they're, they're usually, when, when looking at the gender there's a multi Yeah, and um, so there's, there's this um, tendency of not to look at the data in a nuanced way. And a lot of folks, both practitioners and consultants, don't have uh, necessarily a background in data analytics or research. And so that's why, partly why I felt um, compelled to do the work that I do, because I felt like that could be my contribution to the field or where I feel I can make a contribution to the field. Because I don't think when it comes to doing work around research and data um, that it is something you can just sort of check off the list with like a, a online course. Like for me, I've treated it as a craft that I have refined over the years and I still continue to like refine over time. Um, and the work that I do now has really allowed me to connect the dots of my varied professional and academic experiences in a meaningful way. I think I want to close with um, a project that you have experienced recently. And, I, and I'm not going to, you know, I'm so tempted to ask you what is the most awesome I think you've ever heard in this meeting. <laughs> I, don't know if there, I don't know if I want to put that out there, though, because that feels um, like... I can go back to my EEOC days. It's that much time has passed, but I don't know if we could do more recent. Um, um, I, I, you know what, Beck, yeah, let's, let's, let's hear it. What is the, what is the most fascinating thing you've ever heard? Um, so I had to do a site visit as a federal investigator at the EEOC, and it was a race discrimination case. And um, 
when I was interviewing one of the key stakeholders who was basically CEO of the company, um, he's like, well, I like black people. <laughs> and like pointed to a photo <laughs> of someone that he was like in a, and I'm like, okay. I, I don't, like, I, these the, this was back in the day, I mean, I still don't have a good poker face, but I definitely do not have a good poker face back then. Um, I obviously like my people to look at this picture. <laughs> I yeah. took the straight circuit yeah. to see with this face. Yeah. Was there a black person in the picture? Uh, yes. Okay. But, you know, it's just like... Yes. Um, I know a black person, therefore I'm not racist kind of thing. Yeah, and... Um, and even like with me, people, I mean, I was recently asked this from a client, it's like, I, I noticed you focus a lot about gender equity, but what about racial equity? And this was coming from a black man. And I I said, I, I definitely keep the, the racial equity lens front and center in my work. But most people, when I say, if I were to say, mind the intersectional gap, most people don't know what I'm talking about. They barely know what I'm talking about, like the data storytelling piece. Like, I have a very jargony <laughs> tagline to begin with. So if I throw, it's just, um, so I'm like, I, you know, I, bring, I do bring it into my work, but, um, all right, yeah. Let's, let's finish with um, one of the projects that are most near and dear to your heart. Uh, maybe you have one of those that really, like, moved you mm -hmm. um, towards... Hope. <laughs> Towards hope. hope. Hope for humanity. Hope we are good for humanity. We're going to be able to sound this because like, really that's what I care about. Like, I want to be able to put, put out like positivity that we are going to at some point hopefully be able to, I don't know, like get equality. Sure. sure. Like I'm not even talking about fairness. Sure. Just like equality. Well, um, somebody uh, asked me a, a similar question recently, like what's the silver lining in all this? And um, earlier this year, there were quite a few um, organizations that announced very significant uh, investments in gender equality, PayPal, um, the um, Gates Foundation, among others. Um, and so that's been really exciting to see and uh, learn about. Um, in addition, um, across the globe, um, governments have invested $17 billion in gender equality initiatives. Um, I believe it's across the globe. Yeah. 17 billion. I, I so, so I'm sometimes bad at remembering the number. Oh, but yeah. I, I, so we like need a fact check because I hold that number so much higher. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah. So I do uh, find that heartening yeah. that there's been an uh, at least an understanding and awareness yeah. that, that it's important to to focus on gender equality initiatives like particularly because in the philanthropic space like we talk about startups where oh uh women founders only get 2.7 percent or whatever of uh, vc funding well in the philanthropic space only 1.6 percent of funding goes to women and girls initiatives and so um i i i it, i try to remain hopeful and I am really excited to see how these, you know, what all will come from these initiatives and these investments. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. It's been great.
there you have it. I hope you like this episode and please don't forget to share, like, comment on the podcast link. Tell all your natural and friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for guests at Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes. You can find all this information on www.embossed.io. See you next time. Oh, that was good.